It's made in his very image, uh, the greatest picture of any uh, creature in the universe. There is no place in the Bible that says anything else, anyone else, including angels, ever made in the image of God. And so, therefore, even though man uh, quickly disobeyed God and lost the relationship, God desired that he would reestablish relationship with God. And because he's a spirit being, doesn't necessarily uh, appear to people individually. And so therefore chose to put, put into a book called the Bible all the things that we would get to know about him. And so therefore the Bible is filled with all kinds of things that represent his character. Many, many aspects of, of things that God is. And oftentimes we read the Bible because we want to have some information about ourselves, consolation or comfort, without realizing that so much of the Bible is about him. And so therefore, uh, something we did this week was that those who would uh, sign up for the CDs would uh, also, uh, for $25, include a book called The Character of God uh, for $25. These also are available for $15. They're a good study book. And there are 48 qualities of the character of God that are listed in the book with all the scripture that goes with it. So anyway, uh, it's important that we would look to the Bible for what the Bible says about God, what he says about himself, rather than what people say about God. So we covered a lot of things uh, in the previous three nights. Uh, The major one at the beginning was he's king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, Powerful establishment of that truth throughout Scripture. In fact, the book of Ezekiel over a hundred times mentions the God and his kingdom. We looked at God as judge and God the Father, uh, the favorite word that Jesus used addressing the first person of the Godhead. Uh, God the shepherd, God the savior. God is good, holy, and just, and all those wonderful qualities. But we want to look at a particular quality at the beginning of the hour tonight that is probably the most familiar that we would think of, and that is God is love. Because most people would immediately respond to that, would generate some response on the part of almost everybody that God is a God of love. Indeed, he is. But we also need to note that it is not the only attribute that he has. And obviously, we need to know a lot about his character, the rest of his qualities, in order to appreciate that God is a God of love. Uh, now, uh, a question that is would be interesting to ask is, why did God create man back in the beginning? There must have been some motivation on his part to create some beings that uh, would be made in his image. And because his, his whole quality is that of love, he had to have some ones in order to pour that love into and that they would respond to him in kind, not because they would get something out of him, but because they just simply responded to him. And so, therefore, the great commandment of the Old Testament, so noted by Jesus when he was asked, what is the great commandment of the law, quoted quoted Deuteronomy 6, where it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And added the addendum, and thy neighbor is thyself. But uh, it's important to note that God wanted creatures that would respond back to him without motive. Now, if you re- when you read the book of Job, you will find that uh, 
It was a story of a man that lost everything in terms of things that we count of value. Uh, the book of Job begins with the, the statement that there was a man from the land of Uz, by the name of Job, blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. And then it tells us very early in chapter 1 that there was a day, which I believe means a special day when uh, the angelic host had opportunity to appear before the, the Lord, and it said Satan came among them. And his role of adversary and accuser was there. And so what God said to, Job, uh, to Satan at that point in time was, Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, upright, and fears God and turns away from evil. And what Satan said back to God was something that would represent the trap that God put him into. See, oftentimes we look at the book of Job and we think it was Satan that did all this stuff. No, it was God who opened this door for this to take place because Satan's whole position was, and he said that in the first chapter, yea, does God, does Job serve God for nothing? In other words, you have made him a multimillionaire. Uh, seven, or excuse me, ten grown children, all seem to be doing fine. And who wouldn't serve you? In other words, he has a motive. And also, uh, Satan admitted to God that you have made a hedge around him. Now, the word hedge in the Hebrew a word it means a fortified wall, like walls they put around cities, not some kind of a little shrubbery. Uh, you've made a fortified wall around him, and I can't touch him, which is a wonderful assurance for us, is it not? And then Satan said, you take down the hedge, you take down the wall, and you let me mess with his stuff, or you do it, and, and he'll curse you to your face. Remember the story. And then a uh, second time when Satan came into the presence of God in chapter 2, and Job had lost everything, no insurance. And uh, again, God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, blameless, upright, fears God, and turns away from evil? And you tried to incite me against him without cause. And Satan's response was, skin for skin, Job's health insurance. And uh, said, if you touch his body and affect his life, he'll curse it to your face. And uh, God was believing that you could trust a man to believe in God without motive. And that's what he looks for among his people. That we have nothing material to gain from coming into relationship with God. There is no personal advantage except what God provides, but not our motive should never be there. And so therefore, in the midst of Job's despair, he said at one point, Yea, though thou slay me, yet will I trust him, which is the epitome of total commitment to a God that he didn't understand why it was going through his life. That's the kind of commitment that God wants for us. Because you see, if God can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are people that would love him without motive, he has then a remnant of a special group of people. And that's what he wants us to be. We need to respond to his love, not because we get something out of him, you see, but because he is whom he is and we can just realize that within the family of God, as sons and daughters of the king, 
Yes, there's a tremendous heritage that goes along with that in terms of inheritance, but that's not why we serve him. Amen? Amen. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at some of the scriptures. One familiar one to you is on the, the PowerPoint, Psalm 103. Let's, uh, you have Bibles with you, so let's look at some of the scriptures that go along with it because there's oftentimes more within the context than meets the eye. Psalm 103. And let's look at verses, verse 11 and following. Notice, by the way, beginning with verse 8, the Lord is compassionate, gracious, aren't you glad? Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He doesn't strive with us always and keep his anger forever. Not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness and so on. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that an amazing statement of truth? Tremendous illustration. Do you realize that... uh, uh, using the globe in this illustration, that if he had said, as far as the north is from the south, there'd be a limit to God's forgiveness, grace, mercy, and compassion. Because you can go north so far and you hit the North Pole and you start going south, right? But you can go east forever and you go west forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What a blessed thing. Exodus 20, let's go to that. It's part of the Ten Commandments, the chapter. But there's a little section in the the, uh, beginning part of the commandment. In verse uh, 5, looking at 6 where it says, Showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. But notice verse 5, you are not not to worship and serve these, these idols. For the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation, those who hate me. Have you ever wondered why this third and fourth generation is mentioned there? I mean, it doesn't seem to be necessary to put into the uh, context of the scripture. I mean, you could just say, to those who hate me. It says, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, it's interesting, in the Bible, a generation is considered 40 years. So three or four generations, 120 to 160 years. Do you realize that the average age of a civilization in history has been less than 200 years? Some have lasted longer, a lot, some shorter. But the average age is a little less than 200 years. Do you realize that we as a nation have been in existence now for 236 years? And what the scripture says, there's an end to what God will deal with the people if we do not keep in relationship with him. And somewhere after that period of time, we live on borrowed time. We are living on borrowed time today in America. Okay, let's look at first, uh, well, just, just looking at the PowerPoint from First Chronicles 16. Give thanks to the Lord for his good and his love endures forever. In fact, the phrase is repeated many times in Scripture, in the Psalms and other places. And it was often sung antiphonally, so that the first part would be, uh, the first verse would be sung, uh, sung and then they would answer, for his mercy endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. And then they would sing the second line, and then they would answer. Uh, and his loving kindness endures forever. Can you imagine if you were a part of a huge group of people, and they were all singing this, this song? What a powerful demonstration that was. 
And the reason that it was repeated, like the 136th Psalm, it has it about 20 times where the second verse is, and his loving kindness endures forever, is to emphasize that his loving kindness endures forever. And he wants to impress upon our mind that's the way he is. <laughs> and there's no end and there's no abandonment to his love. Okay. Let's look now at, uh, well, just a note, Psalm 36, 7. How precious is thy steadfast love, O God. And then another one that I want to look at with you is Proverbs 16, 6. And the way it reads in the proverb is, in, loving, in love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. That word atoned is not usually connected with, with the love passage, but it is here. And it basically says that the great atonement that God accomplishes in our lives is via the avenue of his love for us and our response to him in love. And remember that the word atoned for is like a covering process. And so therefore, uh, God is able to deal with a uh, sinful group of people because what is the scripture? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And cover that over because our response to him is right. And so he can then look to us and look at us and look with us as those who had never committed sins at all. And remember that the scripture we looked at earlier, as far as the east is from the west, so far as removed any sin from you. So therefore, you are seen by God in a perfect state via the avenue of his atonement and his love for you. Isn't that a wonderful assurance? See, I'm sure that in your memory, you think a lot of stuff that you were not so proud of in your earlier life or even more recently. I think we can all attest to that, right? And so therefore, not only has he removed it, he has dropped it from his memory. So therefore, in God's bank of memory, there's no memory of your past sins. You have memory. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> sometimes that bugs you, doesn't it? You, you feel something by way of guilt or something, but basically he doesn't. So therefore, in essence, if you were to approach God and, and you said, well, I was really sorry what I did when I was 23 years old and you know I've really been bothered about that. And he'd say, what are you talking about? I don't even remember anything about it. Isn't that amazing? It sets you free. So when you're set free, you're free to be what God wants you to be. Okay. Let's look at uh, Matthew 3.17. Uh, so let's go to that in the scripture, Matthew 3.17. It's the uh, place where Jesus was uh, introduced by John the Baptist. 3.17. It says that... Um, In verse 16, after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he was taken up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and uh, they saw the Spirit of God. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, coming upon him. And there was a voice that came out of heaven. Uh, We assume that it was loud enough to be heard, because when God speaks, he can have a lot of uh, volume, right? You ever hear a thunderstorm? Speak pretty loudly when he wants to, right? (laughs) Okay, so out of this voice came, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
Okay? Now, the phrase, I am well pleased, is weak in English. Because in the Greek language, it's emphasized much more strongly. So one you could, uh, you could probably put it into a, a freer translation and say, this is my beloved son and I'm absolutely and completely delighted in him. That is how he saw, the father saw the son and the relationship that the father and son had together. But remember that when we come to faith in, in Christ and become redeemed people, we are children of God by faith, right? As many as received him, to them he gave authority to become children of God. And in Romans 8, it says, uh, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, and so on. So therefore, in that sense, you're in the same relationship, though in far lesser quality, but in the same relationship that the son has with the father. So think about that for a moment when you have a problem with uh, self-acceptance or whatever, that what he would say to you, is the same essence, and that is, this is my beloved child, and I'm absolutely and totally delighted with you. (laughs) Right? That ought to be a good impetus to do the right thing, right? (laughs) To live a life accordingly, right? You want him to say that all the time? (laughs) Just think about that when you get up tomorrow, tomorrow morning, that the Father says this to you. Remember that tomorrow's a brand new day. It's not been created yet. And so tomorrow when you get up... Say to yourself that what he's saying to me right now is, this is my beloved son. I'm absolutely and completely delighted in you. Make your day, won't it? (laughs) Right? Okay. Amen. All right. (laughs) Okay. Now let's look at another scripture that will come up on the PowerPoint. Um, That should have been on the past one. Yeah, there is the last one. John 13. 34. Uh, Let's go to that in the book of John. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now you might say, well, that isn't new. That was in the Old Testament too, was it not? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength, thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, keep your hand here and go with me to First John, First Epistle of John, where John, the same author, uh, uses the same statement but clarifies it a bit. First John chapter one, and beginning with verse verse seven, he says, "Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning." The old commandment is the word that you heard. That's what he's saying here. But on the other hand, notice, on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment with you, to you, which is true and in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's like another new emphasis of the same old commandment. I give you a new commandment, John 13, 34, that you love one another in the same way, and that's why it's called new, in the same way that I loved you. Because the one thing that the, the disciples learned over those three years was that he intensely loved them. Everything he did represented this great love he had for these special, this special group of 12. He saw Jesus, they saw Jesus manifest his love to others, but they were the recipients of his special care. They knew that he loved them. So he's saying, I am now 
asking you, using my pattern, to develop the same relationship with one another as I have had with you. Okay. Okay. And then in Romans 5, that's a familiar passage to you, isn't it? Beginning with, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And by him we have access to this grace in which we stand and all that thing that proceeds. But in in verse uh, 6 and 7 it says, Now, uh, hardly a a man would die for somebody else, but perhaps for a good man one would, would make an exception and die for him. But he says this strong statement then in verse 8, But God commended his love to us in that where we were still hostile to him, enemies of him, who would die for an enemy? Who would die for one who was hostile to him? When we were yet sinners, hostile to God, Christ died for us. That's the epitome of love, you see. Great epitome of love. And then let's go to Galatians chapter 2 as well, please. It's a somewhat familiar passage to you because it's sometimes quoted. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the last part of that phrase is up there in the PowerPoint. He loved me and gave himself for me. But let's look at it again. It's interesting It's an interesting passage. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, okay? Christ lives in me, okay? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But it's interesting that in the the Greek text, the word in means it's in something, right? But it's not the word that's used in the Greek text. It is possessive or genitive. So therefore, in the King James Version, by the way, which translated it correctly, it states this, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God. It's his faith in me, not my faith in him. That's the critical issue. And God is able then to produce his, the faith that, we, that is necessary for us to respond to him. It's a, it's a spiritual gifting. Otherwise, it's dependent on how much I can psych up by way of faith. And you see, that's been mis- misaligned sometimes in certain circles because let's say, say uh, there's a person that's very, very ill and you have a group of people that pray for this person and they don't get any better. And then the inference is, well, they didn't have enough faith. And that's tragic because we're assuming something that we aren't allowed to assume. Right? And it's devastating to the poor person that we've been praying for. They didn't have enough faith, so somehow they didn't meet the, they didn't meet the muster. So, sorry, you, you've had it. <laughs> Go on and pray for somebody else. But you see, if it's the faith of the Son of God, and that's possessive, then it's his faith in us, and it's not dependent upon how much faith I can sake up at all, because it doesn't, it's not the issue in any case. It's rather what he is able to do through us. Now, I think there are a lot of times we can resist the grace of God within, but it's his grace, not ours, that produce the result. So therefore, if we're abandoned to him, he's that is unlimited in what he can do through us, right? And we're free and confident with that whole thing, right? Okay. And then in Ephesians 3.19, 
that section that begins with verse 14. Uh, Therefore, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may be strengthened with might by the, by the Spirit and the inner man, that Christ might dwell in our, in our hearts by faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may uh, know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So we might know him. We might know it, not just experience, but know it. You see what I'm saying? There's a depth to experience. We think of something that's just kind of a tangible thing that we can experience. We go through it. But to know the love of Christ is a deep residence within. It resides within. To know the love of Christ. It's more than an intellectual thing, you see. It's a heart commitment. And we know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Okay. And then let's go to the first John one because that's got some other things with it too that will be helpful to us. First John three. Beginning with verse 1. See what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. Isn't that amazing, right? And such we are. And then in verse verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and it does not yet what we appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be, note the word, it's not in the whole PowerPoint, we shall be like him. See, he wants to have a group of people that would so uh, allow the Lord to work into their lives that they actually become like him. Remember back in the book of Acts when the disciples that finally got through their heads what the Lord wanted them to know and uh, they were brought before the religious authorities and remember that the comment, the religious authorities, what a compliment. They said they dismissed them because they they knew that they had been with Jesus. They just talked like Jesus talked. <laughs> they had the same concept that Jesus had. And they dismissed him because they, uh, that was a reaction. But it was a compliment, you see. And so God wants to invest that into our lives. And then Revelation 1.5, that wonderful passage, He has loved us and freed us by His blood. Oh, what a marvelous concept. So uh, the concept of God is love And let me emphasize again, it is not the only quality that God has. It's not the only thing, because oftentimes people emphasize that in terms of his character above and uh, accepting, or shall we say, rejecting anything else. We can never understand the love of God unless we understand the full character of God, out of which he loves. Okay, another attribute is uh, gentleness. And there's just a couple of these. these. This is not an exhaustive study by any means. And the book isn't an exhaustive study. It's only one of many things that were picked out as being important. Let's go to Matthew 11. Wonderful passage because uh, the setting, the context of Matthew 11 was uh, he had just been sharing some pretty strong teaching. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew is probably that which contains the most teachings of Jesus of the four Gospels. That was the theme. And note in Matthew 11 this statement, verse 25, says at that time, so he stopped abruptly in his teaching, you know, teaching all this heavy stuff. 
he stopped abruptly in his teaching and he said, a prayer. He prayed audibly to the Father so they could hear. And he said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I want to thank you and praise you that you've hidden these things from the so-called wise and intelligent, all these people with all their letters behind their names and, and doesn't get it, all these so-called intellectual geniuses, you've hid it from them and revealed it to babes, people who think like little children. But such, Father, was your gracious will. Okay, isn't that a compliment? Because oftentimes we're told, uh, you know, I have a, a friend that I know, and uh, he says, or it was said of him, because my son knew him pretty well, that he wouldn't listen to a speaker unless he had some doctrine degrees after his name. And I thought, how sad. <laughs> he really missed the boat, didn't he? Because uh, uh, I would rather hear somebody that just loves God and knows his word and, rather than some kind of intellectual genius that talks about the Bible and doesn't even know what he's talking about, in spite of his degree, right? <laughs> degrees. Okay, anyway. Matthew eleven twenty nine. This great invitation of the Lord Jesus. Come unto me, begins in verse 28. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Doesn't it seem to suggest that the quality that makes it important for us to come to him is that we be weary and heavy laden? Not necessarily just that, but it certainly is including that, is it not? And learn of me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and... There's the word. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. And he uses an illustration, as he often did, by which the people identified with it. Because you remember that the parables were often uh, like agriculture. Sower went out, planter went out to plant grain. You know, it made sense. And how they planted in those days were somewhat different than how they plant today. But the people could identify with that. So when he uses the word yoke, that was common knowledge among the people. Because oxen were common animals that were used. They were the best farm uh, animal you could use. Better than a horse because they were heavier and they could carry heavier loads. And they weren't... Uh, uh, skittish like horses often are. They were just plodding along, you know. So these two oxen, always had to have two oxen, would have a big old heavy... You've maybe seen these in, in, in uh, what uh, stores where they have uh, antiques. And, you know, some old farmer donated his oxen yoke. A big old heavy timber, you know, like a six-by-six six across. And then it had a thing that went around the neck of the oxen, or the ox. And it kept them together because they were never driven like horses are with, with reins as leather straps, but just by sheer power. Okay. Now, in order to have a yoke of oxen, you had to have two equals. You couldn't have an ox and a donkey together. They wouldn't work. I was teaching at a church in Iowa some years ago, and I used this illustration, and some old farmer came up to me afterwards and said, we used to do that, put an ox and donkey together. I said, oh, no, blew my whole story here. <laughs> so my question was, how did it work? And his answer, it didn't, <laughs> which, which uh, confirmed my story. Anyway, the point being that when he said, take my yoke upon you, isn't that amazing? Because he's calling you his equal. Now, how's that for an illustration? For the oxen to have a yoke, two, you'd had to have equal in size and ability to pull. And when he said, I take my yoke upon you, 
He's saying, I'm going to make you equal with me. And that just about blows you away, doesn't it? And you shall find rest for your souls. And then the next one, which is is like a, a thing that improves on that, or shall we say complements that, he gently leads those with young. Tremendous illustration of the Lord Jesus. He is our refuge. The eternal God is your refuge. Underneath are the everlasting arms. And then let's go to Psalm 31. It's an interesting little passage. Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 4, where it says, Thou wilt keep me, uh, thou wilt pull me out of the net that they have secretly laid for me. In other words, it's a promise that God will give us the discretion and the discernment to know when something would be very harmful that we could easily walk into it without realizing it. It's called a trap. Now, in the 91st Psalm, you know, where it says, He who uh, dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. And it says, It will keep you from the trap of the fowler. And the fowler was one who would trap birds. And they would lay something. Uh, if you're trapping an animal or a bird, you'd lay something on the ground or where the animal or the bird would frequent. And you'd, you would, uh, sometimes you would bait it with something or you'd put some stuff over it like leaves. So... Uh, the animal wouldn't realize it was there, and then you'd caught in a trap, and that's how they did a lot of their fur trapping in the early days. Now, the enemy will lay a trap for you. It'll be an enticing trap. It will look so good. <laughs> and in that trap, you may easily be caught. And when you're caught, just like an animal is caught, you're stuck. And what he promised in this psalm is that even there, uh, I will rescue you, but he basically wants to keep us from the trap because once the trap is sprung, uh, we uh, pay a consequence for that. Uh, where I grew up in Minnesota, they had uh, in the, a lot of creatures called pocket gophers. Now, pocket gophers were gophers that would make mounds, throw up the mound because that's what they did when they made their... Uh, you know, their uh, runs, runways underneath the ground. And the problem with that, if you, if you raised alfalfa as a crop, all these mounds would get into your moor and it made it bouncy, but it also wrecked the sickle on the moor. So they was always trying to get rid of these pocket gophers. So they would have a bounty in the county where you could get maybe a quarter at that time for kids would set traps and they'd catch these uh, pocket gophers. And I did that because everybody else did and uh, uh, there was one particular gopher I could never catch because what had happened was that he was caught one day in the upper front leg and he actually chewed the leg off. To rescue himself, he chewed the leg off. That is not uncommon among parking gophers. And he was so wise after that, you never could catch him. <laughs> Follow what I'm saying? Now, we don't have to go through that kind of disaster to learn from the traps that enemy sets. We can learn from God's discernment, discretion that he gives us. Okay? Okay. Let's uh, look at another here. Uh, yeah, Psalm 32, 34, 8. Wonderful passage. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Happy is the man. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Okay, to continue this. The Lord, the Lord helps those and delivers them. Have you ever said, heard this phrase, the Lord helps those that help themselves? That's not true. I don't think he helps anybody that helps themselves. He lets them help themselves. <laughs> right? Uh, the correct phrase would be, the Lord helps those who cannot help themselves. Because that's where he wants to enter in. See, he's not a little bit of a help. And we need to realize uh, the tremendous potential position that God has in our lives. Because oftentimes when people uh, live a life that's pleasing to God, people consider they're religious people. They're kind of weird, you know. And they have this crutch in their life. They have to lean on God for their lives. And you've heard that phrase, haven't you? Christianity is a crutch. Never believe it. It's a stretcher. You don't need a little help from God that you can make it. You're a basket case without him. Right? <laughs> so when everybody says that, oh, no, I'm not a Christian in a crutch. It's a basket case. I'm totally dependent on him. <laughs> I'm nothing without him. Okay. Let's see. Do not be afraid. This is the Exodus passage where Moses stood before the Red Sea. The Pharaoh's army was behind him. And the Lord said, uh, do not be afraid. Stand still and you'll see the deliverance the Lord bring, bring today. And he shared that with the people. And in Deuteronomy 32, which is his farewell address, by the way, he said, there is no God beside me, speaking of God. I put to death and I bring life. I wound and I heal. And no one... No one can deliver out of my hand. It's an amazing statement of God's grace. I think because of our timing, this would be a good place to break. So, Craig, would you come, please?